Bibles tonight and turn to 2 Thessalonians, please. 2 Thessalonians. And for our Bible study tonight, we're getting back into our series through this second epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. It's been a couple of weeks since we were here last. And we're finishing up chapter 1 tonight. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I want to draw your attention down to verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness, and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we need to just remember a little bit before we uh, finish these verses and finish unpacking those verses. We need to remember a little bit the context here. When we started out this second letter that Paul wrote, we began with highlighting Paul's greeting to the church. And we made note of the fact that Paul said that they were a church to be proud of. In verse 3, he said, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. In verse 4, he says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Paul said here, he's proud of this church. He said, We give thanks for you. We're grateful to the Lord. We glory in you in the churches of God. That simply meant that we make our boast. We're bragging on you. In verse 3, he also says, uh, that it's, it's fitting. He says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet. And that simply means that it's fitting, it's deserved. So in other words, Paul says, We're grateful for you, we're proud of you. In fact, we're so proud of you that we regularly brag about you or make our boast in you to other churches, and it's fitting. It, it's, it's, it's not uh, undue or unworthy thanks or praise. It, you deserve it. And then we began to highlight the things that Paul was thankful for, the things that he was bragging on them about to other churches. The first thing we made note of was the fact that they were genuine in their faith. He said that in verse 1 that they were in Christ. They were genuine believers. And we made note of the fact that in our day, because of a watered-down gospel, because of uh, all kinds of other things, not preaching repentance toward God, there are churches today that, that call themselves New Testament churches that are actually full of unregenerate people. That's not what a New Testament church is supposed to be, amen? It's a called-out assembly of born-again, baptized believers, believers in the Lord, amen? amen? But churches so often are full of unregenerate people, but not these people. They were genuine in their faith, and it was evidenced by the fact that in verse 3, Paul says that they were growing in their faith. Verse 3, Paul said again, we're, we're thankful for you as it is meet because that your faith groweth exceedingly. They were growing in their faith. And he said that they were bound to give thanks. That means to owe, to be under obligation. It was fitting. It was deserved. Why? Because your faith is growing. That phrase, your faith, really holds the meaning and the idea of a conviction of truth. Your conviction of truth, your conviction for truth, 
groweth exceedingly. And that meant that it was above or beyond the ordinary degree, even beyond what Paul was expecting. That was evidence of the genuineness of their faith. This church, you have to remember as well, was not very old at all. Paul spent three weeks, maybe, a little more, in Thessalonica. Three Sabbath days, the Bible said. Because of the persecutions, they ran him off. And Paul moved on to preach the gospel. This church continued in their infancy to grow in their faith, in spite of persecution. Remarkable. Noteworthy. Not only that, he said they were growing in love. The last part of verse 3 says that the charity of every one of you all towards each other aboundeth. This church was growing in their faith. They were growing in love. He said, every one of you all. Isn't that an amazing thing? All the members of this church had the same love for all the others. What a wonderful example, because most of the time that could not be said of many churches. Amen? Here was a church that was being squeezed. This is a church that was being pressed by trial and by persecution. And what was happening and what was being squeezed out of it was growing faith and growing love. Paul was proud of them for how they had endured and how they were growing in spite of those persecutions and tribulations that they were facing. Then we moved into section, to the next section, verses 6 through 10. And what we found in that section was that Paul was encouraging them or trying to encourage them in spite of their persecution. <laughs> and so in order to encourage them to continue to endure, Paul reminded them of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was their great hope. In verse 7, he said, And you who are troubled, and he's, he's talking about the, the persecutions and tribulations that they endure, you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. And so, Paul's main thrust in these verses was that the Lord Jesus Christ is keeping track. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows the persecutions and the tribulations. He's going to keep His word. He's coming again. And if you're troubled, rest with us in this great hope. And when the Lord does come again, Paul goes on to talk about how it's going to affect the whole world. But it's going to affect people differently. It's going to produce two different things. The return of the Lord Jesus is going to produce rest for the believer, but it's also going to bring about retribution for the unbeliever. Verses 8 and 9 describe that very well. And so Paul seeks to encourage them to press on with the reminder that Jesus Christ is faithful. He's going to come. He's going to do just as He said He would do. You can trust Him. And that was meant to be encouragement to these people to continue on in their tribulations, in their persecutions. Not only that, but Paul seeks to encourage them with something else. And that's where we get to our text here tonight. He says, Wherefore also we pray always for you. You notice that wherefore also we pray for you. Paul prays for them because of persecution and trial. So not only was he trying to encourage them in the persecutions that they were enduring by reminding them that Jesus Christ is keeping track, He's coming back, he's, and, but Paul says, I'm also praying for you in all of this. And as you look at the text, we find that Paul didn't pray for health and prosperity in the physical realm. 
And the application that we made of that when we got to that section was that many times our prayer is very self-centered, even shallow. The prayers of Christians are often misdirected. They're often very short-sighted. In fact, they come out as very selfish so often. James 4.3 says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. And what the point that we made with that was that that verse tells us that very so often, not only do we pray for the wrong things, but we also pray for the wrong reasons. And so often that is the case with Christian people. But that wasn't Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer wasn't for the earthly realm. It wasn't for health and prosperity. And we were going to consider two things from these verses. The prayer itself and then the purpose of it. And so consider verse 11. And we, we walked through the first section of this the last time we were together what is it that Paul actually prays for? Well, verse 11 says, Paul says, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling. First of all, Paul prays that they would be counted worthy of this calling. What call was that? Well, the context that this is written in is in the context of suffering. Paul prayed for them in their sufferings. Not that they would escape the sufferings, but that they would be counted worthy by God in the sufferings. The word counted means to make. And so Paul says the prayer is that God would count you, that God would make you worthy. The word worthy means deemed fit. So that God would make you fit in this calling. That word simply means an invitation. In other words, what happens here is that Paul is saying, you're invited to suffer with Christ. You're invited to experience the sufferings of Christ and so that Christ would receive the reward of His sufferings. And the application that we made of that was that so often when we pray, we pray for deliverance for ourselves because we don't want hardship. It is ingrained in us as human finite beings, that we do not want to experience difficulty or suffering. We want comfort. And we'll do all that we can do to pamper or comfort ourselves. Paul didn't pray for their deliverance. Paul didn't pray for escape from the suffering. The thing that he prayed for was that they would be counted worthy or deemed fit to endure it in, in the middle of it, that God would make them worthy of it. Last time we talked about <clears throat> what a worthy walk looks like according to the Scriptures. And we won't take the time to go back and rehearse all of that. But the main point and the main emphasis of all of that was that you and I have a tremendous responsibility Yea, we have a tremendous privilege if we bear the name of Christ to live in a worthy way to bear that name. That directly impacts the way that you and I live today. If we claim the name of Christ, 
what a great privilege and responsibility to live in a worthy way to bear that name. The second thing that Paul prays for, and where we're going to spend most of our time here tonight, is found in verse 11 as well. He says, we pray for you that God would count you worthy of this calling. And the second thing is that God would continue the work that He has begun. He says, we pray that God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness. The second thing is that God would continue the work that He had begun. Paul says, my prayer for you is that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness in your life. Fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness. Think about that for a minute. If you think about it, what it, what it speaks to and what it tells us, and it speaks of God's purposes and God's intentions towards us as believers that flow from His goodness. What is His intention? What is His purpose toward us as believers? Only good. Only good. His will is always good. It's always perfect. It's always right. And he says, I'm praying that God would fulfill or complete the good pleasure of His goodness in your life. If we look at what the Word of God says regarding how God sees us or thinks about us, it ought to bring a whole lot of comfort in our life. Because how many times, how many times in the middle of trials, in the middle of hardships, do we sometimes feel like God doesn't know or God doesn't care? Where's He at? How long is this going to endure? But Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. The Lord has something in store, has something in mind, some purpose in mind, and His thoughts towards us are peace and not evil, and to give us that expected end to fulfill His will in our life. Job 23, 13 says, But He is of one mind, and who can turn Him? And what His soul desireth, even that He doeth. Speaking of God, the desire of God, that's what He does. The very next verse says, For He performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with Him. Who can turn the mind of the Lord? What His soul desireth, He does, and He performs the thing that is appointed for me. What does that tell you about God's intentions and purposes toward you? To give you that expected end, that thought of peace. Psalm 40 and verse 5 says, Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward, they cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. We can't even number the thoughts that the Lord has towards us. Psalm 72 and verse 18 says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, note this, who only doeth wondrous things. What does that tell you about His purpose, His intention, 
for your life. That he only doeth wondrous things. Only wondrous things. Only, only wondrous things. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What does that tell us about God's thoughts towards you and me, His intentions, His purposes? Paul said, I'm praying that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness in your life. What does it tell us? It tells us that we can trust the Lord. We can trust His character because He only doeth good. He only does wondrous things. And we say, listen, we always say, well, God's will, God's will is the best. His will, His way, it's the best. It's only good. We say those things, don't we? Don't we? How many of you would say that God's will is not the best? God's way is not the best. Go ahead, be honest. How many of you would say that? Nobody's going to say that. We always say God's will and way is the best. But as soon as we get into those hard things, and as soon as we get into the hard times, and as soon as we experience real trial in our life, so often our first thought is, why God, why are you doing this to me? Right? Our attitude is not one of, he only doeth wondrous things. Not so often. What about the hard things? What about the trials? What about the sufferings? Is that good? Does God delight in causing trouble and torment in my life? We can trust His character that He only doeth wondrous things and anything that God allows or brings into our life is always only good for my good and His glory. Sometimes people think, well, I want to do the Lord's will. I want God's will. I want God's way because His way is best. We say those things. But sometimes our attitude is wrong. Other times, we are not actually surrendered to the will of God like we say we are. <clears throat> I've lived this for many years, thinking even, I'm completely surrendered to the Lord. Lord, whatever it is you want out of my life, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do it. And I really believe that in my soul. Until the Lord brought to my mind and told me, this is what I want you to do. And all of a sudden I was face to face with, well, that doesn't actually fit in with what I was thinking your will was going to be. Right? Now here comes the spiritual battle. Because I've said, I'm surrendered to the Lord. Whatever you want for me to do. All of a sudden, the Lord says, okay, do this. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
I don't know if I want to do that. You say, well, I've never been in that situation, Pastor. You're a liar. (laughs) That's our tendency. Because we are finite and we are sinful. And let me just let me just let me just say this to you. Sometimes doing or finding the Lord's will is more about denying or surrendering or sacrificing of self and things than it is about actually doing something for God. Let's think on that for a second. Sometimes doing the will of God is actually more about denying self and deny and dying to self and sacrificing and being totally surrendered than it is about actually doing something for God. Because here's how it usually goes. I want the Lord's will. Oh yes, I want to do God's will. But there's this other thing in my life that I actually have some plans for. And it's not wrong but I have some plans for this, and what I'm hoping for is that God's will will agree with my will, and these two things will marry together, and it'll all be happy and good. When it needs to be flipped around, that all of my ambitions, all of my plans, all of my ideas All of the things that maybe aren't even bad on the surface, everything is actually just surrendered to the Lord. That you can take it. And you can do whatever you want with it. And if you want me to sacrifice that, then I'm surrendered to it. Because your way is always good. I read something earlier today that just fit right in line with the message here tonight. It was really good. Elizabeth Elliot words, she said, Today, thy will be done. You must be willing the answer requires it that my will be undone. But so often that's the way it is. I I want the Lord's will, but there's still some area in my life that I'm controlling, that I have plans for, and what I'm actually hoping for is that these two things will come together and it'll all be happy and I'll get what I really am desiring. Hoping that God's will will conform with what I'm trying to do. And so... Doing the will of the Lord or finding God's will oftentimes is more about being totally surrendered and my will being undone than it is about actually doing something for God. Paul said, my prayer for you is that God would fulfill all of His good pleasure and His goodness in your life. And those things need to be flipped around so often that He will do that in our life. And and the Lord has a couple of ways of doing that so often, to get it to flip around. Sometimes it's through chastening. 
Sometimes to get us to flip around, it's through chastening in our life. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. What is God's will in that? What is, what is His will that is good in that situation? The peaceable fruit of righteousness in your life. That's the good. So sometimes the Lord will bring chastening to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Sometimes it's through hard trials in our life that force us to, to have to surrender to the Lord or try to go at it on our own still. You think about hard trial and testing in our life. Think about Job, for example. What was good about all that Job had to suffer in his life? Not only just losing all of your wealth, he was, you go read it. Read what Job had. He was a, probably the wealthiest man there was. Not only losing that, but losing your children, dying, your wife turning on you, telling you to curse God and die, losing your health. What else did he have left? What was good about all of that? And Job still said in Job 23 and verse 10, But he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. In the end, in the end of all of that, Job had a greater understanding and fear of God than he did before. Go to Job chapter 40. Just keep your place here. Job chapter 40. Excuse me. <clears throat> Job chapter 40 and verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, shall he, that shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? Like, are you, are you going to instruct me, Job? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile, what shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. What was, the, what was going on here? God, God started to answer Job. And he started to say, Job, where were you when I did this? Job, where were you when I did that? Can you understand how this works, Job? In all of creation. He's just laying out all of these things that God has done, and it was just starting to become overwhelming to Job. And God says, are you going to instruct me, Job? And Job got a sense of, 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 of who he was and a fear of God, and he's like, oh. I'm not going to answer you because I can't. Job, in the end, got a greater understanding of God and fear of God than it was before. Listen, that was through hard trial in his life. Sometimes it's through chastening, but it's about, it's about getting us to the place of full surrender to the Lord so that He can perform all of His good will and good pleasure in our life. Listen, if there's anything that's good in me, 
or anything that is good in you. It is the fruit of God's good pleasure and His good will being worked in us. And we should desire that. We should yield to that. Even when it's hard, even when what is being asked of us is hard, we should desire it and yield to it because His way is good and it is the best. In the end, when we finally yield and surrender, we're going to see how very good God really is. What was the end of Job's life? Not only did he have a greater understanding of God, but God blessed him. He had twice as much as he had before, even in this life. And that's the least of it compared to eternity. Truly, God only doeth wondrous things. The problem is us. That's the problem. And may we have the same kind of prayer as the Apostle Paul for these people, that God would perform all of His good pleasure and His goodness in our life. But so often we have got to get to the place of being fully surrendered so that He can. We're kind of running out of time here, but I want you to go back to our text and just look at the, quickly look at the next thing. <clears throat> Part of that good pleasure and His goodness being worked in the life of these people was, that, was a work of faith. Because he says there, in the last part, to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. The work of faith with power. For the sake of time, we'll not break this down uh, too much. I'll just comment on it quickly. The word with here, it means in. And so Paul says that work of faith that God would do in you is in power. It's the power of God that not only begins, but also carries on and perfects that work of faith in our life. We don't have ability to do that. But we do have responsibility to cooperate and to work with the Lord. And Paul says that his prayer was that not only would God make them worthy of this calling, not only would God fulfill and do all that he had already begun to do, but this work of faith would be done in power in their life. Now look at verse 12. And here we see the purpose. Paul's prayer was three things. God would make you worthy of this calling. That God would fulfill His good pleasure in your life. That God would work this work of faith in you in power. And here's the purpose of it all that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did the Apostle Paul pray this way for these Thessalonian believers who were in the midst of tribulation and persecution? He prayed that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in them. That's the reason for this prayer. Not that they would escape, but that they would have the work of God in them and endure so that in the end, Jesus Christ would be glorified in them. And let me just say this to you. Isn't that the end that we should aim at as well in everything that we do and desire 
that God, that Jesus Christ in all things would be glorified out of our life. That word glorify, <clears throat> it basically means to make him look as good as he really is. That's basically what it means. That through my life, Jesus Christ would look as good as he really is. How often do we tarnish the name or the reputation of Jesus Christ? The name, name, it refers to all that the Lord is. It refers to his attributes. It refers to his character. That Jesus Christ, his attributes, his character would look as good as he really is. Listen, listen, our own happiness and that of others should always be subordinate to this truth right here. That the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in my life. Not the thing that I think is going to make me the most happy. My happiness should be subordinate to bringing glory to the Lord. Why is it that we pray for deliverance? Why is it that we pray for escape from these things? I don't want to feel suffering. I don't want to feel trouble. My happiness is right here. When it ought to be, Lord, if this is what brings you glory through my life, and this dying to self and this sacrifice is the thing that is going to bring glory to you, then, Lord, I'm, I'm all for that. Because that is my highest goal. That's what it ought to be. Faith is going to produce something. What does the Word of God tell us it's going to produce? It's going to produce good works. Because <coughs> you can't have genuine faith and not have evidence or good works to show for it. But the Bible says that our good works should shine before men that others may glorify the Lord too. That Christ may be glorified in us and by us. And ultimately, we would be glorified in Him and with Him. And this is the great end and design of the grace of God at work in our life. Paul says that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the end design of the grace of God at work in our life, that ultimately we could bring him glory. And so to kind of wrap it up here, Paul's aim and his prayer is that the Thessalonian believers would be such a bright and shining testimony to the reality of their salvation, that the Savior would be seen for the wonderful person that He actually is. And if that was through suffering in their life, then so be it. Christ would be magnified. That was Paul's prayer, far different than what we so often pray. And so why don't we ask the Lord to help us to ask for the same kinds of things. The spiritual things. The things that are the most important to Him. 
so that Christ may be magnified and glorified in our life as well. Amen? Are you surrendered to the Lord? Are you really surrendered so that God could perform all of his good pleasure in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that you'd encourage and challenge tonight with your word and just things for us to think on and meditate on. Am I really surrendered to the Lord? And, or is there part of my life that I want to control? And I'm just hoping that God's will is going to agree with my will in this. Lord, help us to come to the place of full surrender so that you can fulfill your goodness and your good pleasure in our life because you only do wondrous things. And Lord, may the end design be and the goal of our life to truly bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, to make him look as good as he is, to live that name, that others may see our good works and glorify the Lord themselves. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for your goodness to us. You are so good. And Father, we pray that you could have freedom to work in us to do of your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.